0: Welcome to another episode of the Gary and Chip Tennis Show. Uh, I'm Gary Plock, and unfortunately Chip Hooper is not here because he has uh, knowledge, uh, has had abundant knowledge of the person that I'm going to be interviewing today. One of the things about sport is that a lot of it's got to do with genetics. And uh, when I was down at the University of Texas in that Moor Hill dorm with my friend, uh, John Danks, who played uh, basketball down there and was a great, he was a great athlete and he was, uh, his two sons played for the Chicago White Sox. John Jr. just uh, retired after about 10 years of being an ace pitcher and just, you know, uh, John always said, I should have played baseball because, you know, that's just what I was built to do. And he was, he was the fastest guy on the basketball team. and. He's from a, a, a town called Beaver Dam, Kentucky, and he always used to tell a story about this fella that was just widely known as one of the best basketball players ever to come out of Western Kentucky. And that's why I brought up the uh, the uh, athletic reference to genetics being such a strong part of uh, so a lot of children that become professional athletes. Uh, you know, they had somebody in the family, it was a great uh, athlete themselves and John used to talk this story about uh, Butch and Butch was the best player and it was 1959 and they were playing in the finals to get, of the region to get to the Sweet 16 and uh, for Beaver Dam High School, the Beaver Dam Beavers. And, uh, it came down to the wire, and there were about three or four people all guarding Butch at the end of the game, and he, this ball swung around to somebody else, and they hit the winning shot and went on to a couple state tournaments. And later on, about, oh, I'd say about 12, 13 years later, I was playing in the finals of the state high school tennis tournament, and I was playing a boy from Henderson, Kentucky, and I never knew that his tennis coach was Butch Hill. I knew it was Mr. Hill. But I didn't know it was that same Butch Hill that John Danks would later tell me about. And the reason I'm telling this story is uh, I've got one of his sons. He had two sons, could have been basketball stars, football stars, because they had that genetic makeup. They were just great athletes, bigger than me and not flat-footed like me. And I always envied people like that that uh, had that, that natural genetic component. And uh, one of those guys has been... One of the brothers, both of the brothers, actually, were turned into great tennis players, uh, great coaches, and coached for many years on the pro levels to a lot of the people that uh, that you probably heard of that were great players. And I, I, I wrangled one of them, and that's Scott Hill. Scott, welcome to the show tonight.
1: Thanks, Gary. You know, you're the legend. My Kentucky brother, and you know it was you and Mel Purcell's all American status that broke the barriers for us who grew up in small towns and made us and helped us believe that we could also achieve our dreams. So I want to thank you, my brother. Well,
0: you're you're welcome. How did it get started for you over there in that small town?
1: Well, it was interesting. My dad used to coach uh, little league, or umpire little league games. And he used to do the chalk lines before the game started. And he always had a little extra time. So he he noticed this court, right, where he uh, was umpiring. And the court was made of asphalt and had a steel fence. And that's where my brother and my dad started. Uh, practicing together. You mean it was one oh, of those
0: tennis, sure. tennis courts that had a steel fence for a net?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember uh, having to pick the balls out of the net. I was kind of a, their ball boy, and I would always have to go pick the balls out of the fence because um, it would stint, you know, mm-hmm. in, the, in, the, in, the, in the metal. So I remember that, and then at the end of the practice, my dad always used to Uh, tossed me some balls so that's kind of how I caught the bug and I just followed basically I followed in my brother's footsteps because you know my dad was the basketball player he didn't know anything about tennis but as my brother uh, kept improving that just motivated me that's Greg Greg Hill
0: that was four years older than you mm
1: -hmm. yes Greg's four years older than I am and if it weren't for him, I wouldn't be where I am today. Because uh, you know, having a, a brother who's older and better and, and gains that experience, and you're just watching him all the time and trying to trying to do as as good as he does. Um, that's what helped my tennis. There's no doubt about that. So that's kind of how it started. And um, and then when we got older, you know, we started playing uh, twelve and unders. Um, I ended up ranked number one in the South in uh, singles and doubles. And then my best junior ranking was uh, number twenty-two in the nation. And I think that's the one that got me the college scholarship to a top twenty NCAA team.
0: Now your brother your brother had already gone to A&M uh, before yeah. you were well you were probably a freshman 14 something like that yeah. and he went to Texas A&M became a great player uh but how you know how did you get to be number 1 in the south at such an early age coming out of Henderson Kentucky I mean that's that's a pretty small town
1: You know I I really don't know I think it has to be my brother and uh my dad being willing to practice with me as much as possible and um, I remember the tournament well I guess my best win in that tournament was Ricky Brown and Barry Peltz and um, well Ricky beat up on me later in 16's but um, that's kind of how my junior tennis went and uh, yeah my brother was the first All American at Texas A&M with uh, Grant Connell,
0: the first one. He was he was the very
1: first one, and um, he played doubles with Grant Connell. And uh, I'm sure you know Grant went on to win win many Grand Slams and had a tremendous doubles career on on the ATP tour.
0: Right.
1: So my brother always led the way for me. I basically rode his coattails, not only in tennis but also in coaching. So I have to thank him. I have to thank so many people, you know, for for helping me grow and uh, being mentors of mine, including yourself and Mel and and.
0: Um, it takes a lot of different memories. exposures, doesn't it? But you guys were it does you, you guys were really good in in basketball as well. I know. And talk a little bit about that because. And, and if you think that the fact that you played other sports helped your tennis eventually because you were quite, you had quite a distinction as a free throw shooter, didn't you?
1: Yeah, I came in uh, fifth in the nation in free throw shooting. It was one of those deals where you have to win in your school first, and then you have to win in your city, then you have to win in your state, and then you have to win in your region. And if you keep doing that, um, you qualify for the nationals. And uh, I remember the regionals was up in Toledo, Ohio. And it was great because uh, the company that sponsored the event uh, paid for all of my family. You know, to go up there and uh, support me. And I remember hitting 25 out of 25 to win regionals. But when I got into the nationals, there was only 10 of the best shooters in the nation. And that's when the first time the nerves really, really got me. And I hit 21 out of 25. Somebody aced it again, and somebody hit 24, 23, 22, and I hit 21, came in fifth really, my brother, my brother was a better, much better athlete in basketball, much better athlete than me overall. And uh, he, you know we we never played um, tennis in the winters because we had no indoor facility in small town Henderson, Kentucky. And so Kentucky's such a basketball state that we just we love playing basketball. And my dad always had a, a full court gym because he was a, a school principal, so he always opened up the gym for us in the winter time, where we could just train basketball all winter. The first year my brother actually trained tennis full time was his senior year when he went down to uh, Voluntaries to, to train, and he actually roomed with Paul Anicoll, and he beat actually beat Paul in the National Indoors that year, and uh, so that's kind of our, our history, but I have to say, I think my brother's sport, best sport, was football. He was a great quarterback, he could run with the ball, he wasn't scared to get hit, he, he didn't mind lowering his head and developing. Some shots. Where I was kind of the opposite, you know. I'd run to the right, see somebody, and say, "Oh my goodness, I'm going to get hit!" And I start sprinting across the field to the left side of the field. I'd see one guy over there. Oh my God, I'm going to get hit! So I'd run like 50 yards, side to side, and end up at one. So. I knew then that basketball or football wasn't my sport. Especially my last game when uh, somebody put their headgear right into my ankle and snapped my ankle, and uh, that was
0: it for me. Well, your brother your football. brother was your brother was built like a football player too. I mean, yeah, he had he such was. muscular legs and and so strong in his upper body. Uh, and yeah, he did he play high like school? That. Did he play high school football?
1: Not, not high school football. Uh-huh. the way through junior high but my brother was thin until he dedicated himself and put himself on his own weight training program and I can remember every night him in in his room doing squats you know for hours just determined uh, to be able to improve his basketball game and that led you know to him being able to easily dunk the ball two hands backwards. So, that's something that I couldn't do. I could dunk a volleyball, but that was it. Mm -hmm. That's why why I know, you know, he's a much better athlete, especially uh, in in tennis where he uh, was All-American.
0: And then you went to college originally in New Mexico, is that right? After high school?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, My high school days, um, I made three finals in a row. My sophomore year, I played Charles Beckman. Uh, He was a senior. I remember serving at 6'3 in the Buster, and I decided to play high percentage, and instead of hitting out on my first serve, I wanted to kick it up to his backhand, which was actually his weakness, his backhand return. And he actually put the ball right inside my shoe and uh, I couldn't handle that and then he did the same thing at 6-4 and then I, he won that set and I lost the momentum and he closed me out like seven six six three. and then my junior year I beat Rocky Mason from Tate's Creek in Lexington and then uh, you know of course my senior year I lost to one of my great friends Rafer Leach um, who beat me in three sets and then with me uh, the year, a year later out to University of New Mexico.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting because Charles Beckman was top 50 in the juniors in the nation as a senior and you were two years younger and played him tight so that was a, a very good result and you must have been encouraged after that.
1: I was happy about it but you know when you have three set points you know, right, you're right. always disappointed, you're always disappointed, you know you could have done better, you could have use a little bit different tactics. But um, that's, that's the way it happened, and that's what helped form me to you know who I am today. So it's all good, yeah. it's all good, it's all well, competition.
0: Did you enjoy the competition in college?
1: Loved it, I loved it. I loved playing for University of New Mexico. I went in, we were ranked 17th in the nation, and uh, in the fall, What I didn't realize was the smart guys, like our all-American, Tim Cass, uh, who played number one, um, who's now the GM at uh, our national training center in Orlando, Lake Nona. I saw him a couple months ago at the NCAA team finals. Um, and the other seniors, they didn't play those fall tournaments. They knew to rest and get ready and really peak for the dual matches in the spring. So I went in all pumped up, you know, trying to prove myself and ended up winning all the tournaments in the fall and thought, you know, I was gonna have a great year. But when I started playing challenge matches and I went up against Tim and Steve Pickle, his partner, uh, in doubles. They made all Americans together by reaching the quarters of the NCAA. Um, you know, they just they were just much better than me, much you know older and more experienced. I ended up playing number five, which I thought as a freshman that's a good place because it gives you four guys that are better than you that you can practice with every day, and, uh, and each year you can kind of move up in positions and. Uh, so I was I was very blessed. Uh, I did my five official visits. Uh, I, I visited UK, uh, and Dennis Emery took great care of me. I mean, I mean he he is a mentor of mine, and one of the nicest guys I know. And uh, he offered me a, a, a like a I think it was a 3 or or two-thirds scholarship. But what nobody knew was my dad, he he was a strict disciplinarian, you know, very much like Nick Volatieri. And uh, because he was just so competitive. And he told me, he he said, you know, Scott, I've been paying for your junior tennis uh, your whole life, and you're good enough to get a full scholarship, so whatever you don't get in scholarship money, you're gonna take out student loans and pay for it yourself. So I, so when University of Mexico offered me a full ride, I, I just really couldn't turn it down, especially because they were the best team that recruited me. Even though I never took a visit there, I just, I, I, I thought I would love being out west and in that, in that area, and it was beautiful. It was a great campus. Is that Al,
0: that's Albuquerque. In Albuquerque, where they
1: have the balloon festival once a year. Mm-hmm. And, you have, the, you have the Sandia Mountains, which are just a huge, high cliff that you can ski down off the other side. And uh, one time, my brother visited me there, and we took the tram up and checked it out. But it had a lot, it had a lot of great qualities uh, uh, in the, in the school, and especially in the program. So I, I was very really happy there very
0: happy. One thing that we may have uh, skipped over a little bit is you went down and trained at Nick Boliteri's, didn't you, when you were in high school? I
1: I did. You know, when I mentioned that Paul and my brother were roommates, I was there that same year. Yeah. I was 14, my brother was 18.
0: Was Chip Hooper there uh, at the time?
1: Yeah, I saw Chip play sets with Jimmy Arias all the time at the club. And he would take his shirt off, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, this guy is just ripped." Was he, he was ripped? Huge. His chest. His chest was huge. His abs were ripped. He was toned all over. He was I don't know six four, or how tall is Chip?
0: I believe he's six six. Six, six. It may have been six four yeah. at that time. Well,
1: back then, that was that was big actually for tennis players. You know, we were all like six, six foot, six one, six two he was a giant, and I remember I loved watching him play. He served the volleys against Jimmy, who had the big forehand, and they just competed and played set after set and day after day. And you know, being around that environment, you just can't help but soak it in and and learn and become more motivated and inspired. And. It just, it it was a great atmosphere. There's just so much competition that you couldn't get in a small town like Henderson. So I was fortunate Nick gave me a full scholarship just based upon my being ranked number one in the South. And uh, you know, when I went down uh, that first semester, uh, he tested me, he put me in five tournaments, the 14 and under to, to make sure I was his best player. And I actually won all five tournaments. Is that, that right? There. And so,
0: yeah. how, who else? Where? Who else was on a full scholarship? How many people would he have on a full scholarship? That must have been fairly exclusive.
1: Well, I mean, I, thats kind of a private matter. You know, I, I never see. told anybody. I, I never told anybody I was on a full ride. Uh, my brother was was on a like like a three quarters ride, and um, so I. You know, back then, Nick was just so generous uh, that he tended to want to help people and help develop players, and he wanted to bring all these good players from around the nation together. And sometimes when you start something, because this is only, this is 1980, the Nick Bolater Tennis Academy was founded in 1978 at the Colony. Um, because I eventually became the public relations director for five years. And, you know, I learned all the history and and it helped because I was a part of it. And um, I just remember those days uh, when I was 14, we trained at the Colony and I would hear this thundering pop. And I, I, I was so curious. I worked my way over to the top court that Nick always had his best players on and there was Jimmy Arias hitting the biggest forehand I'd ever seen in my life. And when he loaded up and, and, and swung on the ball, I mean, his feet would come off the ground, and um, you know sweat would be pouring, and, and the ball would just explode off his racket, and it, it was something. It was a spectacle to watch. And Nick would always be screaming, you know, faster, faster. And then there was always a huge crowd at the Colony um, that came out and watched him put on that clinic. And um, he'd be screaming to the crowd, "Watch Jimmy come off his feet? Watch Jimmy come off his feet? Because, you know, my dad took Greg and I to that Louisville Clay Court Classic. I don't know if you remember that in the 70s.
0: I played in so, that tournament. Sure do remember it.
1: Did, did you? Yeah. Well, I got, you know, I had to a chance to watch uh, Billy Martin and Harold Solomon play V-Loss one time and Eddie Dibbs. And, you know, when I look back, I realize those guys really hit moon balls. I mean, it was on clay, but they all stood in the center of the court and hit an equal amount of forehand and backhands. You know, I don't think it was until Jimmy that a player started running around and punishing the forehand. So...
0: That's right, you know, That's... Watch,
1: watching that watching that for the first time just you know was so inspiring
0: and coming up off the ground, not many guys did that where you exactly. left your no, feet nobody
1: you know like Vlos would rip beforehand and he would kip up, you know he'd load up on his left left leg, and then as he swung, he would kip his right foot up a little bit, but never did both feet come off the ground in that era. Uh-huh. you know I just. They just didn't swing fast enough. It's the swing that actually brings the feet off the ground, so they just never had that racket head speed that Jimmy had.
0: Well, yeah, that's a, the racket head speed, and then coming off the ground is actually a centripetal force where it's kind of like Newton's third law of motion. You swing and then you push down into the ground, and that that equal and, and opposite reaction creates this force that also makes the ball really dip, and uh, he
1: he did that with his forehand, for sure. It's a kinetic chain reaction, you know, from the ground up to the body. It really is. Centrifugal force is like when you're driving in a car and it it takes a left turn and your body weight goes to the right. That's, That's centrifugal force, but yeah, he was the first one to do it. And um, you know we all we all benefited from it. You know we just followed suit, and that's then that from that day on, that's how the only way Nick taught beforehand. And um, well, he was a great coach. He,
0: he he was uh, one of the reasons he was such a great coach is like you said he got, he got all those. Guys, together, so you guys would beat each other's brains out, and through that competition, you're just going to get better. And if you bring the best players, it's just going to bre- right. just breed on itself, I guess.
1: That's right. I mean, he had to have a vision, you know, that that's what American tennis needed. That was the only way to get all these players spread out all across the nation into one training environment where everybody could push everybody, be extremely competitive, and benefit from each other. You know, so he had to have that first thought, and, and that's how he put it together. He started at 78. Um, I was there in 80 and um it just grew, it kept growing and growing because you know they did a segment on 60 minutes about it which doubled our uh full-time boarding attendance and then um i remember i think it was it was 1990 when uh Joe Brandy was coaching Pete Sampras at at IMG and um that's when Pete won his first U.S. Open. And I really think that he won the U.S. Open that year because of Pat Because you know, I watched every single day how hard Pat worked, Pete, in the sandbox for an hour every day, doing foot drills and shadowing five-step drops, scissor kick overheads. and He just went into the Open feeling so confident with his conditioning and fitness that I really believe that helped him. And
0: that Pete, that, that, uh, at Pat Etcheberry was the strength coach at the University of Kentucky and then went down to be the strength him. coach at Nick Bolateri's. And Fritz now may have had something to do with that. I don't know.
1: He had, he, he had everything to do with it because he was coaching Susan Sloan in Kentucky and basically. When he, when Nick wanted him to bring Susan down, he said, well, I'll bring Susan down, but you got to also take Pat Etchaberry because he's, he's the best fitness, fitness coach that I've ever seen. And he will be a, a huge benefit to your program. Is that so, right? Uh,
0: Package yep. deal.
1: Package deal.
0: And then uh, eventually Fritz, or maybe before that, Fritz, uh, went down and worked for a long time, uh, as kind of Nick's right-hand man. Talk. Talk a little bit about Fritz now.
1: Well, I mean, personally, he's one of the, one of the greatest guys I've ever met. Um, his compassion and the way he treats people with total respect and and he has so much fun with his students on the court. You know, he, everybody's drawn to him. He, he just has this aura. That uh, people just love to be around him, so it wasn't hard for him to recruit um, good players. You know, I'm sure that's why Susan Sloan uh, attached to him. And um, and then I remember when Andre went with went with Fritz. You know, Andre and Nick kind of falling out, and Fritz started started coaching Andre, and. What Fritz didn't know was that's when Andre started doing his drugs. And that's when his ranking plummeted, you know, to 141. And, and, you know, Fritz is such a great guy that he took responsibility for that. And he said, you know, I'm sorry, Andre, that, you know, your ranking's fallen. But I promise you, I'm going to find you the best coach possible. And that's when he found Brad Gilbert. And Fritz turned him over to Brad Gilbert.
0: Is that right? Is that right? Now, yeah, Fritz was a Kentucky basketball player himself. He wasn't originally a tennis player, was a, a great basketball yeah, played,
1: player. Yeah, he, he was a great basketball player and he played for Georgia, yeah, he played for Georgia. But yeah, he was a stud, man, he, he had the height, he had the athleticism, and um, you know, growing up in Barberville, Kentucky, you know, everybody plays basketball in Kentucky, so you know he got his college scholarship at, at georgia and then it wasn't was later on i think it was 27 when he picked up tennis
0: that's exactly right it was it was not early and uh i think he, he went starts- and got got a job at the club and said i'll i'll come uh, i'll come do these courts for free if you'll show me how to do them <laughs> he just started yeah, like that
1: yeah and then he i remember he used to invite me up to practice when i was Uh, 11 and 12 years old and he always ran these men's groups that had a a, a lot of the best men players in uh, Lexington and he he had a blast with them, I mean they had so much fun and he let me play in with them and this kind of was his start in tennis and he just, I guess he self-taught himself you know, just taught himself because he's such a good athlete he just picked it up by watching or reading. But I don't see at twenty seven, you know, him paying for lessons or instruction. Mm-hmm. But he he has a great eye for technique. You know, Nick Nick has the best eye I've ever seen for technique. You know, a strong suit it's definitely not tactics and and strategies he left, up, left that left up to us, but But he could watch a swing in a clinic that no other coach could figure out. And within one or two swings, he would fix the primary problem and the person would have immediate success. I watched him do that for 20 years. And Interesting. That, that that helped me learn how to break down swings and, and understand the technique. And, and you had so many great coaches. When I started there, I was working at my home club in 89 after college. And Nick called me up in 19, January 1990 and said, Scott, I want you to come down here and work. And uh, I said, I'd love to, Nick. I need to put in a 30 day notice 30 day notice what are you talking about you're going to be here in two weeks quick hung up the phone on me and so I was there in two weeks and it, it was he did it for a reason because the new semester was starting you remember
0: Janie Strauss I surely do wonderful well, player from was. Louisville
1: yep Back then, uh, there was only 10 head coaches. Each head coach had four assistants. To me, that was one of the strongest staffs ever assembled. Um, so anyway, I ended up taking Janie's place as one of the top 10 coaches. But we had um, Joe Brandy, you know, coach in one, uh, one of the top groups, Mike DePalmer Sr., Mike DePalmer Jr., Red Amy, Jose Lambert, Butch Young, of course, everybody knows. Um, Craig Wildy, my brother, Greg. And I was like at the bottom of the totem pole at that time. I was just glad to be in the top ten. I I coached Janie's group, which was the tenth group. But that was the best place for me to be cuz you, you know when you first get there you, you just got to be a sponge and you got to learn the the voluntary system and the, the way they teach and it's different than everywhere else it's just it's just unique
0: Do they have a pe- pe- it, sounds like it's a pecking order where the top ones the Arius and hoopers it is. may be on court 1 with the joe Brandon court right. and, and and on and down.
1: everybody wanted to be on court one with nick you know, and he only took the best player that was there that day. And it was usually Jimmy. If it wasn't Jimmy, it was Carling Bass. If it wasn't Carling, it was Eric Carita and Pam Casal. And, uh, you know, we had Bill Quigley back then, and then, you know, Paul, my brother. And so um, there was some really good talent. Who, who – what sure
0: other – name some of the other players. I think Chip told me that at one, at one time uh, – One time the U.S. Open drill had, U.S. Open draw had 60-some voluntary players in it, or something staggering, some number.
1: Yeah, I'm sure on on both, you know, men's and women's sides. That's probably true. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, that eventually led um, to me becoming the public relations director, I, I told you that. And that, that's what helped me learn so much about the history of, of Nick. And um, I wrote an article on him once and he handed me his resume and it was so thick. And he, he's actually, a, Already been inducted into 16 Hall of Fames around the nation, and uh, you know, and then he was finally voted into the International Hall of Fame a few years back, which is the pinnacle of
0: mm-hmm. all coaches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just a kind of an unparalleled story uh, in tennis. <laughs> It it is, it is, because
1: he he never really played himself. You know, he started a team, I think, for a military academy, where he was a parachuter. And um, and then from that, he just fell in love with the game. And he was one of his strongest suits is being a motivational uh, speaker and motivating his players. He he, he would fire you up and fill you with confidence and when you left his court, you know, you thought you could be anybody. And that really helped propel uh, the best students and and the most talent, you know, to really reach their full potentials.
0: Now, so. now during this time that you were coaching, obviously over the years, being there 17 years I think you said, you must have moved, yes. moved up uh, from 10th to the top couple courts, and you, you, tra- you and your brother both traveled with great players, because you all had Grand Slam champions working out at the Voluntary Tennis Academy at that time.
1: Yeah, I mean there's a big difference in, in, in what I call coaching. And what I call training players. You know, my brother literally traveled and was the head coach of Mary Pierce, Marcelo Rios, um, Eva Maioli, Mary Joe Fernandez, and that was at a time when, when they were playing great tennis and i know he took Mary Joe to the semifinals of I think it was was it the Australian Australian Open. And um
0: and, uh, he, uh, had Mo- worn,
1: he had more than I'm not even listing. Mm -hmm. But I only coached one great player. Um, He was a 16-year-old junior, and uh, the vice president of IMG came up to me and he said, "Uh, we want you to coach our best uh, up-and-coming Junior, um, and he's parallel to over Pavlidis the same age. They have the same agent. And I, I said, "Sure, it sounds like a great opportunity for me." And so we started coach. They let me coach him privately. And uh, the first year that uh, we went to the U.S. Open Juniors, he uh, got to the finals. He ended up number three in the nation, and then that's when his agent we knew that when you're number three, it's time to start playing qualies, you know, on the men's tour. So at 17, he was playing qualies, the men's grand slams. And then by the time he was 19, he was in the grand slam main draws. And at 20, in four years, he was playing Andy Roddick on the center court at Wimbledon. That's when Andy was seated number one. Um, he played antibiotic on center court on live TV, which was just a dream for me. You know, it's just a total dream uh, being the coach because, like I tell everybody, I, I never hit a shot. And it was Jimmy's talent that got him to that point. It surely wasn't my coaching. Nobody's that good of a coach to take a 16-year-old to number 85 in the world in four, in four years. His name was Jimmy Wang. And uh, we were accelerating quickly to the top. And uh, I said bye to him one day as he was going to play Davis Cup for his country. Uh, He was from Taiwan. And uh, during a Davis Cup match, he caught a forehand late and popped three tendons in his wrist. And couldn't hit a ball for three years, had uh, three major surgeries on it. And that's um, you know, when IMG dropped him, and I lost lost contact with him because he moved back to, to, to Taiwan, but he's still out there right now, you know, trying to make a comeback. But he's, he's you know, that window of opportunity only comes around once, and. Um, That was the, he was very coachable. You know, he did everything I always told him to do, except one thing. He was skinny at the time. I kept, I begged him over and over. To live, And I even stepped. I even set up fitness trainers, people, experts, for him to go and get on a fitness program. And finally, he told me, he, he, he said, "Scotty, I pushed eighty-five in the world. You know, on my own, I've never lifted a weight. I think I'm doing just fine." And I said, "Jimmy, you just don't realize you're 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 a boy. And you're playing against men who rip the ball. And yeah, you're gonna be fine for." Some matches, but eventually your body's going to break down unless you get stronger and more fit. He, he just—that was the only concept he didn't believe in, and that's what cost him his career. Yeah, you know,
0: that's, that's fascinating. It. That's a great lesson to be learned right there. Uh, it, it is the tennis, and you know now it's just so brutal that you've got to be strong everywhere, don't you?
1: Well, fitness is everything in tennis I mean you can be a better ball striker you can even have better tactics and a better game plan but if you can't last and your anaerobic capacity you know can only allow you to scramble for 15 to 20 balls at that level at that speed and then you hit the wall you know and then you end up trying a low percentage shot just to end the point and uh You never can reach your full potential unless you're in in your best shape. The conditioning, mental toughness, you know, and then having the strokes in the game. I think all three play a huge part in developing champions.
0: Would you say that uh, I'm taking the top four, and that my top four are? Uh, for this illustration would be Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and and Serena Williams. Uh, would you say that their fitness level is better than 99% of the others?
1: I would, ever, yeah definitely, except for you know, Serena, and I love Serena. I, I trained her, I never coached her. I trained many, many of her sessions as my brother trained Venus alongside me, and um, you know I coached her during the training sessions. But I never traveled with her. I was never her head coach, so I, I would never say that. But but I I did train her, and um, she was just she was in great shape back then. You know when she started winning her first few slams, but. Recently, she, she hasn't been, but the other three you mentioned, yeah, that, they make that a top priority. They realize the importance of it, and they dedicate you know, hours a day in the gym. I mean, a lot of these pros, the way they train is two, two and a half hours of, of drilling and practice in the mornings, then they come back in the afternoon and get their sets in, and then that's when they hit the gym for an hour or two of fitness. So it's it's a good you know seven eight hour day just like
0: anybody else puts in. Huh. Interesting. I noticed that after an adult semifinals match, they had the cameras on him. He was in there biking after a, fair, yeah. a fairly long well, that, match.
1: That, that, that's actually a flush flush down. That's yeah. to get all the soreness, the lactic acid out of the system, right. and amino acids. Uh-huh. um, Yeah, remember Nolan uh, Ryan
0: used to do that after every game he'd pitch, he'd ride that bike about 45 minutes to break that down. That's
1: right. Dennis Dennis Rodman did the same. He'd play a game and then he hit the bike and actually lift weights. Really? And a lot of athletes knew that before it really became mainstream.
0: You know, that's what Chip Hooper told me his key to success was because he won so many three-set matches. Uh, because he would just see the guys wither and he goes at the time I was the only guy lifting weights on the tour and he was at a University of Arkansas was lifting weights every day with Dan Hampton who was one of the monsters of the Midway and uh, later on and he said you know uh, and he still lifts six days a week to this day and uh, you know he, 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 he saw that as a huge advantage because of the also the cardiovascular benefits I guess of, of lifting
1: you know yeah you know you have to lift that does help your cardio but you've got to do a lot of anaerobic training mm-hmm. you know it's, it's, it's okay to run long distances to build up a, uh, an aerobic base you know where your heart rate is, is high for 30 minutes or more but tennis is not like that tennis is a, a, a sprinting uh, for you know, five, six seconds, mm-hmm. or 10 anaerobic, seconds. And then, yeah. And then you have uh, 20 seconds to, to let your heart rate recover and the better anaerobic shape you're in, the faster your heart rate recovers to play that next point. You know, I've seen, I've studied a lot of film and I've, I've seen Andre literally be a puppeteer and run pros seven straight corners when he could always hit a winner behind him, but he'd just keep hitting it in front of him making them spread, you know, side to side from corner to corner until finally they got so exhausted they just hit, hit the ball to the net. Mm-hmm.
0: That, I used that, employed that tactic in juniors quite a bit on clay courts, not with I mean, uh, his piercing ground strokes, but in those corners to just it. to wear them down.
1: You know, it's all about opening up the court, making them sprint, you know, and that's when most of your winners come is back to the third corner. Because when your opponent's feet's in the center of the court, and say so you take them to the uh, the singles line, you're only getting um, a 13-foot sprint out of them. But when you take them from that first corner and make them sprint across the entire baseline to the other singles line, you're getting a 26 or maybe 30-foot sprint out of them if you take them outside the singles line. And that last second sprint to the second corner is really what opens up the court. So the winners really, most of the time, go to that third corner. Interesting. And that's, how, that's how Fritz taught, and uh, I know he relayed that to Andre, and, and uh, Andre picked that up pretty quick, and, uh, and he used it. And he used it, and then it was Brad that helped him understand risk-reward management. Where you know he wouldn't play cowboy tennis and right. try to hit down the lines when he's outside the double valley. But he taught, taught on what balls you know he should be going down the line on. But it's different than juniors. And juniors, you want to train your players to hit a lot of cross courts until they get that short ball but in pros you got to be able to change directions off every ground stroke basically you know and, and then because it takes 10 years or 10,000 hours to reach that level they played so much practiced so many balls and played so many matches that they can determine um, on how the ball is how much spin there is what pace it's coming their location on the court uh if they're in position or off balance and they know through instincts through so many years of training what balls that they can execute that they can actually make when they do play the lower percentage shot because it's much lower to hit a down the line off a cross-court ball because you have to change the direction of the ball over the highest part of the net. you got a shorter court. you got to recover past the, the center mark, you know, to be in the center of all possible returns. And um, that's why a lot of juniors, want, I call it the open court illusion. You know, their opponent will hit them across court ball their feet will be outside the singles line but all they see is that open court down the line so even though they're off balance and out of position they think that's the right shot and so they go for it and they miss it they wonder why they missed it but what they haven't been taught is really the geometry of the court and and why going back cross court when you're out of position doesn't leave you exposed to the sprint because if if you go down the line and you don't hurt them you're leaving the court wide open. And then they get to hit a cross court off of your down the line, which is much higher percentage because now you're still changing the direction of the ball, but you're going over low net, long court, less recovery, just much higher percentage. So you have to know how all that plays out. You have to know your capabilities. And after so many years of training, you know, the, the best pros develop those instincts, and, and they, their shot selection is just tailored to their game in a high percentage.
0: Yeah, I, I noticed that in Agassi, later in his career, how he was, you know, the po- points that he was playing, he was just playing smarter shots, he wasn't making the unforced errors yeah. nearly as much. Yeah, and, yeah i like
1: when he, did go down, when he did go down a line on a ball that was level with, with the net, he didn't try to flatten it out. He would put spin on it. He would take a little pace off of it knowing he had less distance. And he just became wiser. But, you know, he had to be taught that. I mean, some players learn that from their coaches. And some learn it through instincts. Because if the player gets burned enough times... Okay, in a match and he keeps going down the line when he's out of position and he keeps getting beat uh, by his opponents cross court and he's losing point after point and he, and he figures out that pattern, a good smart player, his instincts will kick in and, and he'll make a, an adjustment mid-match and he'll stop doing that he'll start going cross court when he's out of position. So some Just do it instinctively. Some need to be taught it, but everybody needs to know it. That's for sure. And and you can learn it at an early age because coaches are becoming more knowledgeable and uh, information's out there. It's just a matter of the student being coachable. It's not easy concepts when you're first introduced to it, but the more a coach shows it to a player on a off the court, on a on a piece of paper, on a diagram where they can actually see the dimensions of the court, uh, they learn it much faster. But if you try to explain it to them verbally on the court, it's harder for them to pick it up because of it being verbal only and, um, distractions. But when you take them off the court, put them in a private place, uh, they can focus and, um, they actually learn it much faster because it's not just verbal skills from the coaches. It's them using their own visual skills to see uh, the difference in, a, in the length of the court in are down the line compared to across court.
0: Right, right. We're very visual learners, that's for sure. Yes. Now you, you, you've written some of this down. You've, you've published some articles. You've been in, in the tennis magazines. Uh, Are are most of those instructional articles? Do you talk about how parents should act or, you know, junior tennis, fitness? I've
1: I've written articles for IMG for every topic imaginable. I've had articles published in every uh, top tennis magazine. World Tennis, uh, all of the top magazines in our nation. And I've also had some people come up to me and read my articles in uh, Russian, and and I know it was published in, in multiple languages. But you know, when you work for IMG, uh, you're basically writing for them because what they do with, with my articles and with the other coaches' articles that they write, they barter for free advertising. So the magazine needs the article, so they'll give up a half a page of advertising space. So there's no money exchanged, oh, and it's just it's just an ongoing deal. So it required me to write tons and tons of articles, which actually led me to become a, co- a sports columnist, which I only covered, only wrote about tennis. And then you know that I writing became a passion of mine. And uh, I wrote for a website, I noticed IMG's website was, wasn't was doing anything. And I checked it over three months, uh, over a three month period and nothing was ever changed, nothing was ever updated. So I went to them and I said, you guys are missing out on a lot of money. I said, you gotta start freshening up this website if not daily so people want to come back to it and, and and view it and you're going to have more traffic and that's only going to drive business. So that's when actually they decided to make me public relations director. So you got to be careful about coming up with too many ideas because then they put you in charge of them <laughs> and it just, it just requires more work out of you. So my last few years I just kind of learned to be quiet and do my job and not uh, get myself into any additional work because there was plenty of work. You know, we were on the court at 6 a.m. and uh, we worked straight through until 6 p.m. That's 12 hours in the hot Florida sun on concrete tennis courts. And I I, I was born with a severe case of scoliosis, which made me injury-prone my whole life, and it's why my body broke down, because uh, I played satellite, a lot of satellites after college, but I just kept getting injured, my back would go out, and uh, I knew that that would prevent me. I could never play with the big boys, so that's what I did. I, coaching was what I wanted to do.
0: Huh, interesting. What about uh, the coaching now, not not coaching, but the players that you watch. Obviously you watched the U.S. Open or a good bit of that and sure. saw what was oh, going yeah. on and the the females too. What, uh, is there, you haven't been out of it that long. Is it Has it changed even in the last 10 years, let's say? I mean I know that yeah. the science and the fitness has, but in terms of the play itself, has that changed?
1: Well, yes, it has. You know, now the science of it is they're saying that the average rally in pro tennis is uh, two to three balls, three balls. But what what people don't realize is they're they're counting all the missed return of serves. You know, I, I don't f- follow that logic because I watched too much tennis to understand. The average rally is not three balls.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, it's just the return that is missed so often that makes it that number. So there's a lot of coaches out there right now just, you know, teaching the, the serve and in the, in the first ball, which is really how tennis has changed in the last 10 years. Because, you know, back in the 70s, consistency and movement and middle toughness could be your weapons and you could be a top 10 player. But as the game progressed, there came a time when you had to have at least a huge forehand, a huge serve. You had to have a, a weapon that you could finish points with. And um, and now it's come down to you know the serve and taking that first ball and trying to you know attack your opponent with it and stay on the offense and, and dictate play and finish the point quickly, but it doesn't always happen like that, you know, because you hit a lot of second serves, and you get into rallies, and you know, that's what really makes it exciting. It gets boring where so many, like Wimbledon of the past when it was just a serve, and that they had the grass so fast that they couldn't return the ball. I don't know if you remember those days, but they've made the grass so much slower now. The ball bounces higher, and players have more time and it's allowed for more entertaining
0: tennis. Interesting, and you know when you're watching Nadal and, and Djokovic play, uh, if you threw out the missed return of serves, which isn't a lot at their level, uh, uh, they probably got eight to ten shot rallies more than yes. two to three at the at That's the very fun. top.
1: That's what I see, and I watch it all. I mean, I still, I'm on the Tennis Channel. You know, I'm still involved in it. Um,
0: What about the girls' serves? Is this girl serving picked up? I mean, it seemed like in the women's side a lot of times the uh, serve is, is not as smooth as these guys that crank. I know that the, yeah. the power difference, but I'm just saying it seems like uh, there's a little work that could be done on second serves, for example, where they're well, spinning well, them in.
1: You know, a lot of that has to do, and it's the same with foreign players. Uh, in nations where they don't have baseball and football, and their and their uh, children aren't taught the correct throwing motion, okay, it's kind of the same with girls. When, when they're growing up, they don't play football and baseball, and they don't really develop a natural throwing motion, and so they have to learn that as a player, and that's the hardest shot because. There's just so many moving parts that you have to have great timing and, and you have to learn the proper technique. You know, back, back when I was a player, it, we were taught to have both elbows up high. You know, now it's right elbow low, left hip out, so you can catapult, spring up into the contact and so the techniques evolved as far as that's concerned a bit. But the men, just, they just grow up with stronger throwing arms in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives them, a, gives them a head start.
0: Well, Scott, what about your future? Are you planning to do some other things in tennis? Uh, what's, what's going forward for you right now?
1: I still do I still do some writing I love writing writing for passion Um, I retired you know about three years ago and uh, kind of hung up everything even though I still follow the sport but it was about six months ago that I just felt God was calling me to help people and to get back into it in whatever way that I can Improve and motivate and educate uh, as many people as possible. So that's that's what you'll see me be doing in the next five years is is uh, speaking and educating. It, which is what I did as as the public place instructor. They sent me all around the world lecturing to all national tennis federations. Is the that right? In the state. Yeah, because they all wanted to know why was it Politeri's produced 10 number one players in the world and the USTA produced never has produced one. And so they always came for us to do clinics. So we always went over and um, gave me an opportunity to do a lot of, of uh, re- recruiting and scouting. You know, it, it's important to scout talent when you're out there. Uh, running clinics uh, in all these different nations because you, you just never know when you're going to find that diamond in the rough, you know. So it was a great experience, but that's that's what I'm going to be doing. Um, I still have a real estate company that I'm the CEO of. Uh, basically, it was my my dad's. I had I had my own real estate going. Um, before the the housing crisis hit,
0: that,
1: that hurt. That that hurt me, because I had about twenty houses and and that turned me upside down on a lot of them. So now, after my dad passed, you know he had over a hundred houses at one time that he rented out. So that's kind of fallen into our uh, responsibility now. So. Um, I'm always busy doing that. People moving out, you gotta go in a clean. you gotta get new people, sign leases, write contracts, all that stuff. And then, you know, I still uh, represent a few Hall of Famers uh, as a sports agent. You know, I've, I kind of found my own niche in that area where um, I've had people call me and just ask me uh, who the best fitness coach is that they could hire, you know? And I, I'd, I'd always say Pat Atchaberry and I've worked on deals for him with China, and then you know, worked on deals for Nick. And uh, you know, and what I've learned is that you can take a deal to anybody, any player who doesn't have an agent, and any agent who represents a player, and say, "Listen, I, I just spoke to." This club and they want to hire your your player um, to come do a a clinic, you know, and then they're willing to pay ten thousand dollars a day plus expenses. And so, you, you know, once once you and I, I can even call clubs and try to set up deals, set the deal up, and then go to the player and say, "Look, I got you this deal. Um, do you want it?" and that's how it works sometimes that's how i do it you know i don't have my law degree but i i do know how to write contracts and i, I do know the, the legal side of it just mainly through real estate but um that, that's been the easy way for me to do business as a sports agent so i'm not like an official sports agent i just uh you know help my friends uh that i know um uh, that I have relationships with. And, um, and then uh, I, I've met a lot of people to go off a lot of great relationships in the tennis industry. And and people would just call me occasionally and say, you know, can you help us get this guy or that guy? And, uh, and then I'll just, you know, go about it uh, approach and say, you know, if I can get you $10,000 a day, would you want to spend a Saturday, Sunday in your off season, make some extra money? So that's my niche so that's I'm great. also doing I'm also doing that um, so it's the real estate it's that it's the writing um, I'm heavily involved in my church now you know I had a real problem with opiates in the past and um, you know I, I was an addict and um, I'm, I'm a recovered now but in real life, you, you're never really recovered. You're always an addict. And, um, you know, I'm glad I've, I've gotten through the, the hard times of it, but I also want to take that story. I want to share with people how that has affected my life. And I hope to help other addicts and inspire them that they can get through it they can overcome it and they can can still reach their full potential that even though they may be at rock bottom you know there's there's always the opportunity to, to get out of that life you know it, our nation is it's just gripped with the, an opiate epidemic and The numbers are untrue, because for every addict that's accounted for, there's five more that are in silence because they're embarrassed and they can't ask for help. So it's bigger than we even know it is, and and we already know how huge it is. You know, when these pharmaceutical companies uh, started coming out, pushing it as safe and didn't tell the doctors, you know, how addictive it was, you know, that. It only takes, after surgery, if they give you, you know, a Vicodin, it only takes five days to become a full-blown addict.
0: Is that right?
1: That's right. That is the fact.
0: Well, that might be your new calling, that uh, because yeah. I'm sure you miss, you may not miss being out on that hot asphalt every day, I know that. But no,
1: you, I can't do that anymore because of uh-huh. my back. Uh-huh. My back, every, every single disc in my spine is herniated and bulging, every single one, from my S1, L5, all the way up through the top of my cervical, and uh, it's inoperable, and um I'm supposed to be ninety degree hunchback right now, from what my neurosurgeons told me, you know, when this started ten years ago, when it really got bad. But you know, I feel like God's healed me. He's got a purpose for my life. I'm excited every day to wake up and uh, and, and and keep working hard towards my goals and. And uh, I know there's some some more work for me to do in the world, and, and uh, I'm excited about it. I look forward to it very, very much.
0: Well, Scott, uh, I wish you people, that's you know? the, that's that's a fantastic story. I mean, you're very frank and probably one of the most knowledgeable people we've had on these podcasts in terms of uh, not only tennis but about life. And I'm proud of you, and uh, that you've well, you've kind of come full circle and and or were able to probably have the greatest victory of your life, which was beating the opiates, it sounds like. Yes, definitely. There's
1: been a lot of challenges, but that was the toughest because, you know, I'd I'd, I'd stop and then I'd have another surgery and then I'd get started back on it. It all started when I was diagnosed with full-blown lung cancer and I was given six months to live. This was in the mid-90s. This was at, at when Fritz and I, after Fritz split with Andre, he called me up and asked me if I'd resign from IMG and if I would come help him start his tennis academy in Boca Raton. And I did. And then after four years, we built a strong program. And he came down with cancer really bad where he had to have radiation, chemo. At the same time, I came down with uh, cancer and have a have big portion of my lip removed. Wow. And uh, Nick heard about it and called Fritz and said, You know, you guys are under too much stress over there. It's only the two of you. You have 35 full time students. Would you please merge those full timers back into IMG? And so Fritz uh, had a meeting with the executive committee and opened up his books and showed him you know, the business that we had. And um, I know a lot of IMG pros got jealous because our our salaries pretty much doubled. But they didn't realize we were bringing bringing $30,000 a month to the table every single month. You know, some people just don't see the big picture. But anyway, that's kinda helped me grow that corporate ladder. You know, Fritz, Fritz has helped me all the way. Butch Young's helped me. Uh, there's just been so many people that have been instrumental. So I don't want to keep rambling, Gary. I know you wanted to close up. So
0: well, know. thanks. Thanks for joining us today, and uh, hopefully, we get your brother on here, and talk to him a little bit because he's oh, probably absolutely. almost as interesting. You. He's probably almost as interesting as you.
1: Oh man, he's much funnier. He's got a way better sense of humor. Does he I'm good. a little bit too serious sometimes, you know, but he's he's just funny and uh you'll have a great time with him. And he, he's got more tennis stories and more with more pros Does he? than anybody anybody I know except for Nick. So he'd be a great interview, I'm sure.
0: Well. We'll twist his arm and get him on here, and we'll do it. And thanks again for joining wow. us. And This is it for the Chip and Gary Tennis Show. We'll see you around the bend.